Hello there, space fans, and welcome to another edition of Last Week in Space, the supercluster podcast that brings you all the biggest updates from the world of space exploration. We have Chris Gebhardt here today, Assistant Managing Editor of NASASpaceflight.com and Supercluster Contributor. We're just off a very big launch at Cape Canaveral, CRS-19, to the space station, and overnight there was a couple of launches that we're going to talk about. Chris, thanks for joining us today. It's always my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me back on. I know it's been a couple weeks since we did an episode of Last Week in Space. We had a little Thanksgiving break, and we're heading into holiday vacation. But Chris and I will both be at Cape Canaveral because we're expecting a couple of launches to happen at the end of the year. But this week, we had the CRS-19 mission to the space station, where SpaceX flew their Dragon. This particular Dragon had already flown two missions, and it was the third flight to the station. And Chris, when is it arriving? It launched on Thursday, and it will arrive on Sunday, a a fairly Mm. rare three-day rendezvous up to the International Space Station. Three-day trip. Yes. And the Dragon will spend about a month at the station until returning home. And on board is uh, 5,700 pounds of science, hardware, supplies for the crew. Some notable things on there. Budweiser sending an experiment. I think it's their third or fourth flight to orbit where they're doing a study on the seeds and how much they can grow in space and how they can actually produce beer in the vacuum of space. So it's a really interesting project and Budweiser has put a lot of money behind it and they're flying. It's like a really cool little tiny Budweiser payload casing where they have the seeds on. And also, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's 40 Mighty mice are flying on SpaceX. Uh, Mice have gone up to the space station before because NASA is using mice to help study human physiology and the effects of space travel on human physiology and biology. Mice have always been a great avatar for studying the human body. We share a lot of the same biological processes. So these brave mice are helping us out. And it's really cool. And that is a NASA project. They are. And they're genetically modified mice as well, hence the term mighty mice. Mighty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And around this time of year, if there's a resupply mission to the station, it's usually packed with some holiday goodies, maybe some Christmas presents for the crew or uh, some food that they can enjoy during the holiday time, letters from the families, pictures, things like that. There's no specifics because they're personal items, but NASA did hint that there were some holiday-themed gifts and items going up to the station, which is really cool. We tried to check with NASA to see if the next Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker, will be heading up there. And I, I think what NASA was trying to say is, is they don't actually send a hard copy anymore of movies and that they would just upload it via data stream to the station right after the movie is released. So that's the vibe I got. The Force Awakens also screened up on the space station like just before its release. Right. The Force Awakens was screened and The Last Jedi, I think I broke that story last year when I confirmed it with NASA. But I confirmed that story while I was at NASA for a resupply mission. So I'm not sure if it was just a coincidence that they beamed it up there or if it was actually flying on the mission. But from what we understand this time around for this movie, they're just going to beam it up either right before or right after release for the crew to enjoy. So that's a that's a fun thing to do during the holidays as well. Watch a movie with the crew. Even though the holidays will be quite busy for them on orbit, like it will be for us here on the ground. 
Yeah, I know. So, Chris, we talked about CRS-19. It's obviously SpaceX's 19th mission for NASA. It's the still the Dragon 1. The Dragon 2 cargo variant won't fly until next year. And this mission, it was beautiful. The first day it was scrubbed. That was Wednesday morning. Oh, Wednesday afternoon, I'm sorry. 12.59, Chris. And then the next day it was reset for 12.29. The launch went up perfectly. We got some really beautiful photos from Eric Kuna. They're on Supercluster's Instagram and Twitter, if you find us on there. We actually shot some video this time right up uh, close to the launch pad, and those shots came out really great. There was a lot of cool photographers out there working this mission. There was Trevor Malman. Brady was out there for you guys, right, Chris? Yes, he was. Yeah, we had Brady, yeah. Mike D, and Nate all out there nice. for this one with us. And I saw some really great photos from everyone. It was a really cool mission to see in the daylight. I love seeing Dragon fly. When SpaceX launches satellites and stuff, like we prefer night launches because we can get that cool nebula shot and everything. But when, when Dragon is flying, I personally like to see it in all its glory. So it's really fun to watch Dragon and Falcon fly during the daytime. And I think those are common for resupply missions because of how they have to reach the station and all that. But Chris, you were there. Tell us about your experience. I know we've all been complaining about this so-called launch drought that's it's not a real, actually a thing, but we've, you know, obviously had a launch recently and now we have this one. You know, what was the atmosphere like? The atmosphere was really buzzy and, and excited leading into this for the day before, especially for the NASA social folks and for the media. You know, Dragon was out there on pad 40 and then the day on December 3rd, the day before its original scheduled launch date, the Atlas V with Starliner rolled out. In the middle of the day, right, um, right. We also posted photos from there. So, so we were just standing at the press site watching two commercial vehicles, one crew, one cargo, on neighboring launch pads at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. It was just mind blowing, and we'll get to Starliner a little later on in this podcast. But you know, just going out there, seeing Dragon, the, the scrub on day one because of upper level winds and wind shear and everything was. Obviously a disappointment, but, you know, we, we learned in the United States very hard the lesson of what happens when we launch rockets in weather conditions that they are not yes. built to withstand. And that loss of Challenger and the Challenger 7 casts a very long shadow of the Cape. So we don't mess around ever with with the weather. So that delayed the mission until December 5th. It fell on the one-year anniversary of the crs 16 mission a year ago. Mm -hmm. That was the booster that did its spin and splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean. It fell on the anniversary of NASA's Orion test flight on its engineering flight test back in, I believe it was 2013 or 2014. Um, it was 2014 because I showed up at NASA a couple weeks after that, after this big Delta IV launch for Orion. And I showed up, I think, December 18th to cover CRS-5. And everyone was like, oh, man, you just missed a big show. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> also, Thursday was the anniversary of Chris's birth, which is a notable, notable day in spaceflight. I've had two in my career. So I'm, you and I are, are lucky people to have rocket launches on our birthday. That it just is. shows you, though, the cadence of rocket launches nowadays. It's like we can easily have our birthday launch, which is great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, man, if it doesn't happen again next year for me, I'm not going to know what to do. India, Europe, Russia, up, like. <laughs> <laughs> everyone has to step up their game. But yeah, Chris is describing seeing both. And I did see some photos of folks taking a wide shot of Starliner and Atlas at Pat 41 
along with SpaceX and Dragon at Pad 40. It's actually a really, really incredible thing to see. And you brought up the NASA social. Now, for every NASA-oriented mission, a mission they're overseeing, like Parker Solar Probe or a resupply launch to the space station, NASA always does a social where they invite 50 social media influence. Well, they're not even, some of them are influencers. Some of them are, you know, don't, don't have that many followers. They're just really interested in space and, you know, NASA and things like that. But NASA gathers like 50 of these folks. They range from 19 year olds to 50, 60, you know, retirees. So it's a really diverse group of people nowadays, and it's it's changed over the years. People get really excited, and people really show up for it. You mentioned there was a scrub, and the socials were still really excited. I think many of them stayed the extra day for the launch. You know, back a couple of years ago when NASA would do socials, it was very, very difficult to get people to stay for the launch because my first social, CRS-5, was scrubbed for three and a half to four weeks, and it, the group got whittled down from 50 to five. So it can be it can be a expensive endeavor for a young person to come to a NASA social. But given the you know uptick and the reliability of the calendar and the schedule, and it seems that lately, within a reasonable clearance of like a day or two, launches are going up when they say they are, especially resupply missions and NASA-oriented missions. So if you're a listener and you're a NASA social, you were in the NASA social group or any of the groups this year, please reach out to us. We love hearing about NASA social experiences because one, I was a NASA social person myself and many people who contribute to Supercluster as well. And I wanted to congratulate Stephanie Plachinski. She actually facilitated this NASA social. It was her first one since moving over from the visitor complex. She's a listener of the podcast and a friend to Supercluster, so I wanted to congratulate her on her first successful social. You know, I kind of miss doing them, Chris. I don't know if you've ever done one, but it's not like media. It's very different. You get to actually do some fun stuff and visit the VAB, and if Jim Bridenstine is down, he'll come visit you and give a pep talk, and it's just a really fun experience, and if you're a young person, and I think it's still only open to U.S. citizens at this minute, always check in on that, always inquire, and always a applied and asked the social. It's much more competitive now, but you never know. You might get in. I mean, you, you might because you, you never know. I mean, I know at least two people at the NASA social for CRS-19 who were originally on the wait list. And was they our friends from Texas? Yes. I was just going to say, actually, Space yeah. Padre Island, big shout out yeah. if you are listening. We met we met the, the folks who run that account while we were down there. Rob, you and I, for the Starship. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say their names since we didn't ask permission to use their names. Yeah, but, but um, they're wonderful people. We'll call out their Twitter account, though, because everyone should be following that account. They do really amazing coverage of all the Starship developments down at Boca yeah. Chica. And like Chris said, they're actually visiting Cape Canaveral for CRS-19. And we'll have them on the show, definitely very soon. Chris and I had lunch with them. They're amazing folks. And we didn't get permission to talk about them on the pod, but we will have them on and introduce you to them because they're wonderful people. They just have their own amazing story and how they cover spaceflight. But Chris, have you talked to them after the social? Did you get any feedback? I did. And uh, the, their first feedback was that they were absolutely speechless. And, yeah, <laughs> and, can imagine. and really had no idea how to put into words what, what they had seen. It was their first orbital launch. They, they had witnessed right. Starhopper test flight earlier this mm-hmm. year. But this Falcon they were one of the people who filmed their it. very first orbital mission, and they were just floored and blown away by it. And boy, do they have many, many, many more missions like that to come. <laughs> 
Right. So many more. It's really exciting to hear that. Yeah, I, I always love hearing people's first rocket launch stories. I'm hoping to bring my my brother is coming down with me to Florida during the holiday, and he's never he's obviously been around all this stuff with us, but he's never actually seen a launch. So I'm looking forward to bringing my brother. Maybe my my parents have seen a million launches, but hoping to bring my family to one of the launches during the holiday break, and hopefully my brother will. And I, I'm going to like tape his reaction to you know just to see what it's like and. And that's what I love about socials because when you and I and our our colleagues are out at the causeway, right to our like right or left, we're separated by a piece of rope, but you can see all the socials and you can see how excited they get right before launch and right after launch. Their hands are on their heads. They're calling people. They're just super excited. So I love reactions, especially first time reactions. But Chris, so we had CRS-19 and we all went to sleep. Did You probably didn't go to sleep because we had a rocket lab launch, a progress launch with some more supplies to the space station, and what, another one. Like, wh- tell me what's going on, Chris, because I went to sleep. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well. <laughs> well, admittedly, I did too, because after uh, a couple of nights of not really sleeping, given the scrub and everything, Paris right. 19, mm-hmm. I followed along as long as I could for Rocket Lab before I pi- finally passed out with exhaustion. But Rocket Lab successfully launched their tenth flight in U.S. time in the early morning hours of Friday, December 6th. This particular mission for them was called "Running Out of Fingers," and a nod to if you count the number of missions on your hands, you only have ten mm-hmm. fingers. So right. you run out. And this launch got delayed a little bit today because of weather, but then ended up launching, I believe it was right before sunrise, local time in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And Electron did the big jellyfish plume in the sky. It was just absolutely amazing visually and then but the most important part of the mission is it delivered it's the multiple small satellite payload it was a major ride share mission for them successfully Mm -hmm. delivered all of those payloads into orbit and the first stage successfully tested all most not all of its recovery and re-entry equipment and survived perfectly according to Peter Beck and they maintained a telemetry and data lock with it until it impacted the Pacific Ocean which was expected for this mission so a wonderfully successful test flight of all of Rocket Lab's recovery equipment because eventually what they plan to do is recover the first stage for reuse But unlike the Falcon 9, which comes back to land under its own retro rocket propulsion power, Electron will deploy a huge parachute and be snatched midair by a military-grade helicopter and then brought to a recovery (laughs) ship downrange in the Pacific. So that's definitely one that we're going to be looking forward to seeing when, when it happens. But wonderfully successful launch for Rocket Lab. And then... Just a couple of hours, maybe not even a full two hours later, Roscosmos, the Russian Federal Space Agency, launched the Progress MS-13 uncrewed resupply mission up to the station from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. It was their fourth and final resupply mission of the year. And because Dragon's launch uh, on the 5th, And because Dragon had to perform a three-day orbital rendezvous just because of orbital mechanics and where the station was in relation to Dragon when it launched, that Mm -hmm. actually has forced Progress to also do a three-day rendezvous, which is very, very rare for Progress as they normally do the very fast-track six-hour rendezvous up to the International Space Station. But because of where all of these craft are and the timing 
of what all the crews are doing up there on the station. Progress will now arrive on Monday morning, 25 hours after the Dragon spacecraft arrives on Sunday morning. So busy times at the station. And just like Dragon, the progress is filled with crew supplies, station equipment, science experiments, as well as some holiday goodies and treats for the Russian side of the crew up there. So it was a, it was a really, really, really busy 16-hour period here on the ground. And, and of course, that's not even <laughs> counting what happened today at Cape Canaveral and what's coming up later this month with Starliner and its orbital flight test. Right. That's the next launch, right, Chris? No, there's actually a SpaceX launch of JCSAT-18 coming up no earlier than the 15th of December. Then OFT, the orbital flight test of Starliner, will follow right now no earlier than the 19th of December, so four days later. Right. You said SpaceX JSAT is going to be on the 15th from, and that's going to be, is that going to be Pat 40? That's Pat 40, right? Yes, it is. And then on the... So I know that OFT was supposed to be on the 17th, but it's been moved to the 19th now? Yes, that's correct. They had an umbilical cable and and vent hose issue on the Atlas V that they discovered after integration that they had to swap out, and that put them down a couple of days on the timeline, primarily because of the SpaceX launch with CRS-19, but it's not as bad as it sounds up front. As part of the orbital flight test for Starliner, they were doing what was called the integrated day of launch test, where they roll the Atlas V out to the pad completely fuel it. They send the closeout crew and the inspection teams into the pad after the rocket is fueled. They open up Starliner's hatch. They pretend to load crew on board, close up Starliner's hatch while the rocket is fully fueled on the pad, evacuate the pad, and then they actually go through a full countdown up to the T-minus one second mark, and they basically do everything but light the engine on the Atlas V. So very similar to the static fires that we're very familiar with with the Falcon 9s, except the actual ignition of the engines. And ULA tweeted just a few minutes before we recorded this that that integrated day of launch test went very, very well and was complete, gave the teams a lot of good practice of what they'll be doing on the 19th of December for this particular mission. But what is also very noteworthy about this is that if the orbital flight test does launch in December, uh, Starliner will arrive at the International Space Station while the Crew Dragon of CRS-19 is berthed to the station as well. So it will be the first time that a Starliner and a Dragon, a cargo Dragon, not a Crew Dragon, but still, are at the space station together. And SpaceX worked with a little bit with Boeing on this overlap coincidence of missions to make sure that Starliner's thrusters, which will be pulsing and firing as Starliner comes in for an automated docking to the space station, don't adversely Mm -hmm. affect Dragon's sensors and solar arrays. And SpaceX confirmed that there is no concern with Starliner's arrival while Dragon is there. And likewise, there's no no issue for Starliner if that mission happens to get delayed a little bit and Dragon ends up departing the space station while Starliner is there in early January. So, you know, we always like to, well, not we, but there's a segment of the population that really likes to think of SpaceX and Boeing as being in competition with one another. But this is a good moment of, of, you know, really highlighting that camaraderie and the sharing of vital information that's needed as these missions are going to overlap with one another beginning next year or later this year or next year. Right. And I think the most surprising thing about the space station from a layman perspective is that it's actually a pretty busy place. 
you know, there's sometimes Chris and I will look at the station and there'll be like three vehicles parked there. You know, it's it's a really busy place and there's vehicles coming and going more often than people think, at least. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, and, and it's worth noting here that, you know, Dragon's arrival on Sunday morning to the space station, the Northrop Grumman Cygnus resupply craft from the United States as well mm-hmm. is also berthed at the space station right now for its NG-12 mission. And the NG-11 right. Cygnus, which launched back in April, is still in orbit as well, but not attached to the station. So, you know, this month we'll have Soyuz, Progress, Cygnus, a Cargo Dragon, a Starliner, all at the International Space Station together. So, like, I mean, at this point, really, the two craft that we're missing are the Japanese HTV vehicle oh, wow. and spacex's crew dragon those are the only two cargo <laughs> so or crew vehicles and cargo vehicles for the station program that aren't going to be in space in december if all the schedules currently hold and that's really something <laughs> crazy so looking at the rest of this year we obviously talked about you know starliner is going to launch uncrewed and we have jsat from spacex but we also have one more starlink launch and we have SpaceX's commercial crew in-flight abort test, which there was some confusion during the webcast this week during CRS-19 where misspoke and said that in-flight abort would be in February, which was a pretty big shock to many of us because that's a you know two months after we thought it was going to happen. And then James Gleason from SpaceX tweeted a correction or cl- a clarification, I should say, saying that the net is still December for that. We're expecting that one after JSAT, obviously. So that puts us in like the final two weeks of December, probably well, early and, and January. And actually, there, there's some no earlier than dates that we can glean from NASA's media accreditation release. So the deadline right. for mm-hmm. foreign nationals or, or non-US citizens to apply for the in-flight abort test is today. And foreign nationals mm-hmm. require 14 days notice ahead of time. So that would notionally put the in-flight abort just from a simple media accreditation standpoint, no earlier than the 20th of December. Mm-hmm. Right. L- likely a little bit later than that, but that would be the earliest possible it could happen because of that media accreditation. It's a logical thing to measure, though, I, th- I think. The NASA schedules and the accreditation do match up most of the time. So it's it's correct to think that we're looking at like a December 20th-ish net date. Yeah, it's it's definitely late December for, for mm-hmm. IFA. And, and net stands for no earlier than. So, right. you know, that, that that would be the earliest possible it could go. And, and obviously with with how complicated this is and how busy the... Eastern range is in Florida in the month of December. That could slip, you know, a few days. Um, it could end up slipping after the next Starlink mission, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. it's yep. in-flight abort. And what's important to remember about it is that e- even though the rocket, the dragon and everything might technically be ready no earlier than December, NASA still has to weigh in and give their final approval. And because of the destructive nature of the test in which we expect the Falcon 9 to be destroyed by its automated flight termination system, as they simulate the failure that Dragon should abort away from the rocket with, the Air Force and the Eastern Range will also have to have a say in this because we know that the rocket will not survive. So all of those agencies having to talk together really, you know, it's it's important to really note that that December date really is no earlier than. Right. 
And we're, we could easily be into January. Just putting that out there. Chris, to wrap up the show, do we have any launches that we're looking out for this week? This week, we have another mission that is launching from India as well as from Russia. So uh, the first one that we're looking out for this week is actually from Russia on Tuesday, December 10th, 4.30 in the morning, Eastern time here in the United States. It is a new GLONASS-M global navigation satellite system. So very comparable to the GPS network from the United States Air Force. This is Russia's version of that. That will be launching on December 10th. And then the next day, On December 11th at 5.30 in the morning Eastern Time, the Indian Space Research Organization will launch the next RISAT satellite or radar imaging satellite. It's the second one in the third generation of RISAT missions, and that will be launching on December 11th. So this week will also be very busy, and because it's not just Florida that's busy with launches. Um, right, yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh... In December, the whole world seems to have saved a whole bunch of missions for this month, because <laughs> we really want to end the decade with a bang, apparently, and good bangs, yeah. good controlled bangs from rockets, Yes. It's going to be an exciting next few weeks. So stay tuned on Supercluster's channels, and we'll have coverage from our missions that we discussed down at Cape. I'll be down there. Chris will be down there. We'll be taping our final episode of Last Week in Space down at Cape Canaveral with a couple of really special guests, which will be amazing. And we'll be at Cape Canaveral bringing you live updates and everything else. So if you want to check out Eric Kuna's CRS-19 photos, hit up our Instagram, hit up our Twitter. I actually just posted some really crazy videos we caught at the launch pad, so check those out. And Chris, thank you for being on, and I will see you soon, buddy. And happy belated birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, man. And I look forward to seeing you and wrapping up the year. 